WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts, and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation. Plus, MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. The flu pandemic of 1918 happened while our country was already facing major challenges, including a world war and a faltering economy. Despite the progress we've made over the last century, we see a number of parallels between what happened in 1918 and what's happening today. And there's a lot to learn about our current situation by looking back. Alex Navarro is a historian from the University of Michigan, where he's the assistant director of the Center for the History of Medicine. He described the 1918 pandemic and how it spread across the U.S. So there were three to four waves, depending on how you count, uh, of the pandemic. It started in the spring of 1918, and that was not a particularly deadly wave, uh, although it was noted it caused lots of cases. The deadly wave started in the late summer of 1918 into the early fall, and it started in the military camps uh, first and spread from there to the civilian population. In terms of uh, the civilian population, it started in Boston and Commonwealth Pier, spread throughout the city, and then spread down the northeast uh, to the south, midwest, uh, and the west. There was another wave that followed that in early winter of 1919, and then there was a fourth wave in 1920. Um, When we talk about the 1918 pandemic, we're really talking about that fall wave, that late summer, early fall wave of 1918 into the winter of 1919. And uh, in terms of death, it killed anywhere between 550 to maybe 675,000 Americans. We don't really know uh, for sure because the the case reporting was a little bit uh, sketchy. And worldwide, it's estimated to have killed anywhere between 20 and 50 million people. What do we know about why there were four waves of the virus and how they sort of ebbed and flowed. So we don't really know for sure. Some of this is because of the way that influenza works and it becomes this seasonal phenomenon. We don't really know why the first wave was not deadly and then the second wave was so deadly. The the current theory is that there's something called antigenic drift there. The proteins on the outside of the the, uh, influenza virus uh, undergo these mutations, and there may have been a slight shift, and it became more virulent. So that's that's the theory right now uh, as to why the fall wave was so deadly. Now, after that, of course, with any viral epidemic, as, as people get infected, as they recover, they have some immunity for at least most viruses. And so the more people who get infected, the fewer susceptible people are left in the population. And so each subsequent wave attenuates. And until in the case of 1918, that particular strain, the H1N1 strain of influenza, became one of the seasonal strains of influenza that circulated for decades. We're hearing a lot about a possible second wave of the novel coronavirus. When you think about the pandemic we're experiencing now and you think about 1918, where do you see parallels or potential lessons? 
one of the big concerns is that in, in a great number of cities, in at least half of the cities that we studied, there was a second spike of cases still in that fall wave in the, in the late fall, early winter of 1918, when they removed those social distancing orders and their, their gathering bans too soon. Uh, and so that's the concern today is that as people go back to a normal life or, or what is uh, normal for, for today under the pandemic, and as they start to circulate and, and mix with one another, you know, there's still we still have a large number of people who are susceptible to this. The vast majority of people have not been infected. And so as long as that remains the case, the epidemic will be with us. And in cities like Denver, San Francisco, even a city that did fairly well, St. Louis, they had a second spike of cases when they removed their social distancing orders. And the big lesson is, and this was the case in 1918, and I don't know if it'll be the case today, I hope not, is that it became almost impossible in, in every city in America, in every state, to try and re-implement the same level of social distancing orders and gathering bans in 1918. When they saw another spike of cases, they realized they needed to do something, but there was such pushback from the business community and from residents who did not want to you know, labor under these um, strict gathering bans again, that they basically just let the epidemic run its course and, and they just became resigned to the fact that there were going to be deaths. When you think about the political environment in 1918, uh, how were elected officials responding at the time? The response to the pandemic was, by and large, a local and state phenomena. There was essentially very little, if any, federal response. That That's just the way it was, uh, you know, Public health certainly was and, and remains to this day the domain of, of state and local governments. Uh, the federal government was was um, prosecuting the war effort. So Woodrow Wilson, the President Wilson, was uh, concerned with keeping troop mobilizations going and, and trying to, to bring the war to a conclusion. There were some circulars that came out of the United States Public Health Service and the Surgeon General's Office about uh, what states and, and cities needed to be on the lookout for and what some of the things they could do, they could potentially uh, consider these closure orders. That was the extent. Uh, in terms of the the local politics, you know, it really ran the gamut. Um, there were some mayors, for example, who were very quick to get behind their public health officers and behind state orders, if, if state orders were mandated, to close and to try and, and get the epidemic under control as soon as possible. There were other places of uh, Atlanta is a great example where the mayor did not believe that the closure orders were warranted. He did issue them along with the health officer for a couple of weeks. But then when businesses pushed back, he unilaterally decided over the objection of his board of health to reopen. And so it really depended on on what the you know the, the political pushback the mayor is facing and, and how well tied and well connected that mayor was to the business community as to whether or not they kept them in place for for longer. So as you're speaking, I'm hearing very strong similarities to what we're experiencing right now um, with COVID-19 and that you have a sort of state-by-state -state approach to the, the pandemic. And some states are open, some are not. When we look at 1918, how much did that approach impact the rate of infection, the number of deaths the nation saw? And that there wasn't a coordinated response, but it was really one state operating on its own with another state next door, maybe doing something completely different. So that, it's it's a little bit of a difficult question to answer because we don't know. You know, in 1918, you know, compared to today, there was probably much less regional travel, although it certainly happened by train. But in 1918, the the one historical. Uh, context piece to remember is that this was a time of war. So there were lots of troops being mobilized. Uh, and so, you know, even if 
the cities did not coordinate or, or regions or states did not coordinate with one another, you still had the war effort going on. So influenza was still going to, to spread. So it's a little bit of a different context. But certainly cities, we found this in our study in 2007, cities that implemented these social distancing orders and public gathering bans early, that did them in a layered fashion, so they closed as many things as possible, and they kept them in place for as long as possible, definitely fared better than cities that did not. And so that's the real lesson. And the other part of that, the, the end here, uh, as we start to think about coming out of these social distancing uh, measures and these, these orders is that cities had a really hard time re-implementing them a second time. The population just did not want to go back to these community mitigation efforts. And so the fear today is that if we don't have a strong community mitigation effort to replace these closure orders, and, and we understand they're, they're particularly onerous for businesses, if we don't have something to replace them and we do get new outbreaks and hotspots develop, what do we do then? And that's, that's the real problem. If we don't have compliance uh, for stay-at-home orders and we don't have something to replace it, are we just going to be resigned to the fact that the epidemic has to run its course? Professor Navarro, can you give us more details on the types of restrictions that were put in place during the 1918 flu pandemic? Sure. So most cities and states closed schools, although not all the notable exceptions were Chicago and New York, and there are a few few others, New Haven, for example. And they mostly concentrated on closing what they termed places of public amusement. So these were theaters and movie houses, uh, dance halls, pool halls, bowling alleys. In a number of cities and states, they asked churches to close, but they did not uh, force them to close. And in many places, they closed saloons, but not in all places. And so you might imagine that if there was a state or a city that did not force saloons to close, but asked churches to close, clergy uh, were often quite upset. So those were the types of, of orders. They also did things like uh, they often implemented staggered business hours, and that was designed to keep people from rushing onto streetcars at rush hour. So if you had factories getting off at the same time as apartment stores and you have shoppers and retail workers, that was a, a disaster. So they decided that they would stagger those retail hours a little bit. And in some places, uh, particularly out West San Francisco, the most notable example of this, they implemented mandatory face mask orders. That was about the extent of the orders they, they implemented. One of the things we have at, at our disposal now is technology. Uh, we can um, FaceTime one another. If we if we want to connect, we can have certain things delivered to our home. Are there advantages we have now that we're not fully accessing that weren't available in 1918? Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we have the ability now to close a wider swath of the economy. Painfully, yes. Uh, but we have many workers, not all, but many workers who can continue to do work from a distance. I'm able to do work from a distance, fortunately. Uh, that was not the case in, in 1918. In 1918, you know, manufacturing was a large uh, segment of the economy, and manufacturing continued, uh, not only because it was the war effort, but because there was no understanding that not having people congregate at work uh, would actually help the, the pandemic, uh, or at least the mitigation efforts. Um, you know, so the economy today is, is different. We're, we're much more service sector oriented economy. And so that causes problems for, for a lot of people who cannot uh, uh, you know, work from home or who at the other end of it are forced to go to work because they're considered, uh, you know, essential if they're a delivery person, for example. You know, the flu of 1918 is commonly referred to as the Spanish flu. What is the, the history behind that name? 
So because Spain was not involved in World War I, it was a neutral country, uh, censorship of the press uh, wasn't uh, present there. And so the initial cases coming out were reported in Spain. And so that's where it got the moniker Spanish flu. But it's not, it did not start in Spain. We're, we're not entirely sure where it started. One of the prevailing theories is that it began in Kansas, actually, at a military camp in Kansas. Uh, there are other theories uh, stating that it came out of uh, one of the trenches in, in military camps in France. Uh, others have contended that it most likely came out of Asia, like many influenza viruses do. But the truth is we don't really know. Did that name lead to xenophobia? Uh, we're seeing that now with COVID-19, that we're seeing an increase in, in hate crimes against people of Asian descent. Uh, not that we know of. In fact, the interesting thing about the 1918 pandemic is it was really the first pandemic that did not lead to uh, scapegoating of any communities. And in large part, that's because uh, it basically hit everyone equally. Now, the effects were not felt equally. Just you know, then as, as today, uh, people of color were disproportionately impacted. But certainly you were not um, immune to it if you were, if you were wealthy. Uh, you know, in previous pandemics that were, say, waterborne illnesses, uh, if you were wealthy, you could escape the city. Uh, you could you could go to your country estate, for example. Um, in influenza, you know, it was equal opportunity. The only cases of scapegoating that we did see occurred in Denver. And during that second spike of cases after they removed their closure orders, uh, when they thought they had everything under control, when they saw a second spike, it was one person. He was the uh, assistant uh, health officer who blamed the it Italian and um, Hungarian population for continuing to spread influenza. But that was really the only example of scapegoating that we saw. So you just highlighted something important, which is that we're, we're seeing COVID-19 have a disproportionate impact on black and brown communities. What are those key lessons we can take away from 1918 and apply to the pandemic we're living through today, especially the ones that we're, we're maybe not talking about or taking advantage of? Well, I think, you know, we can certainly imagine a, a post-pandemic world where we start to address all of these, these issues problems in our economy, uh, problems in social disparities in health. You know, in 1918, they didn't have that, that social language to be able to see the impact, this disproportionate impact on communities of color. And so in Chicago, for example, uh, they saw that the death rate amongst whites seemed to increase by this massive percentage, about twice as much as the death rate amongst blacks. And so they thought, well, this is because African-Americans have some sort of innate immunity to influenza. And that was certainly not the case. It was just that African-Americans in Chicago were already dying of many diseases at such a high rate that that increase that influenza caused didn't seem as great as the increase in deaths that influenza caused in the white communities. Um, so I think as we move forward, you know, certainly we need to address uh, you know, everything from uh, disparities in health, but also, you know, criminal justice and, and the way that influenza uh, or rather COVID is spreading in prison populations and how we disproportionately uh, incarcerate black and brown people in this country. So this is really, I think, an opportunity for a top-down re-examination of our culture and our society. That's Professor Alex Navarro, medical historian from the University of Michigan. Professor Navarro, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much. And that's today's Reset. For the latest and most accurate information about the COVID-19 crisis, go to 91.5 on your radio, WBEZ.org on your computer or device, or ask your smart speaker to play WBEZ. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And let's talk again soon.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.